this true story was reported in the Boston Globe, an American newspaper, a few years ago. Let me read it to you. Accompanied by her fiancé, a woman went to the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston to plan their wedding reception. The two of them poured over the menu, made selections of china and silver, and pointed to pictures of the flower arrangements they liked. They both had extensive taste, and the bill came to $13,000. After leaving a check for half that amount as down payment, the couple went home to flip through books of wedding announcements. The day before the announcements were supposed to hit the mailbox, the potential groom got cold feet. I'm just not sure, he said. It's a big commitment. Let's think about this for a bit longer. When his angry fiancé returned to the Hyatt Hotel to cancel the banquet, the events manager could not have been more understanding. The same thing happened to me, honey, she said, and told the story of her own broken engagement. But about the refund, she had bad news. The contract is binding. You're only entitled to $1,300 back. You have two options, to forfeit the rest of the down payment or go ahead with the banquet. I'm sorry, really I am. It seemed crazy, but the more the jilted bride thought about it, the more she liked the idea of going ahead with the party. Not a wedding banquet, mind you, but a big blowout. Ten years before, the same woman had been living in a homeless shelter. She'd got back on her feet, found a good job, and set aside a sizable nest egg. Now she had the wild notion of using her savings to treat the down and outs of Boston to a night on the town. And so it was in June of 1990, the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston hosted a party such as it had never seen before. The hostess changed the menu to boneless chicken in honor of the groom, she said. and sent invitations to rescue missions and homeless shelters. That warm summer night, people who were used to peeling half-gnawed pizza off the cardboard dined instead on chicken cordon bleu. Hired waiters in tuxedos served hors d'oeuvres to senior citizens propped up by crutches and aluminium walkers. Bag ladies, vagrants, addicts, took one night off from their hard life on the streets outside and instead sipped champagne, ate chocolate wedding cake and danced to big band melodies late into the night. In Isaiah chapter 55, God himself issues us, you and me, with an invitation, the greatest invitation that we're likely ever to receive. Just by way of context, the original invitation came to the people of Israel while they were in exile in Babylon. Uh, The Israelites, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whose name was later changed to Israel, were a family that God had blessed and had said would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Early in their history, God rescued them out of the land of Egypt, and he brought them into the promised land. Uh, The Israelites had destroyed the nations that were in that land due to the nation's wickedness. But God warned the Israelites at the time that if they themselves were wicked, then he would do the same to them. He would destroy them, remove them from the land, and take a remnant of them into captivity in Babylon, which is exactly what had taken place. But now God comes to his people, his disobedient, sinful, and disgraced people, with this wonderful invitation. 
And because the Bible is not merely a historical book, but is God's word, this is an invitation to you and to me too this morning. Whether we are God's people or those who are just curious, this is his word. Let's have a look. Isaiah 55 and verses 1 through 13. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me, hear me, that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. See, I've made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations that do not know you will hasten to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their way and the evil person their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the pine tree, and instead of briars the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign which will not be destroyed. This is God's word. There's so much that we could look at in these verses, but I'd like us to have a look this morning at our thirst, God's invitation, and our response. Firstly, let's have a look at our thirst. And I'm sure that we instinctively we know that these verses are not to be taken literally. The writer isn't speaking about literal hunger and thirst, rather it's figurative. This passage describes our restlessness as human beings, our desire for something that we can't even articulate necessarily. And actually, our thirst, our desire, is never satisfied. Have you noticed that? Over 3,000 years ago, the writer of Ecclesiastes wrote in a poem that the eye never has enough of seeing nor the ear its fill of hearing. Or as a modern-day poet put it, I can't get no satisfaction. <laughs> you see that with children, don't you? How many of you have had a child or a grandchild say to you, if you buy me a happy meal, I will never ask for anything ever again. All I want in life is a happy meal. 
Imagine buying her a happy meal and having that work. You know, every birthday and every Christmas, what would you like? Nothing, thanks. I've had a happy meal. Throughout the rest of her childhood, she often says, I remember that happy meal. What great joy I found there. Just as she predicted, it brought her lasting satisfaction. She was great for the rest of her life. <laughs> it doesn't work that way, does it? Only a child would be so naive. Or not. <laughs> Maybe as we get older, we don't get wiser, our happy meals just get more expensive. As human beings, we're thirsty, and often we don't even know what it is we are thirsty for. Let's look secondly then at God's invitation. Have a look at verses 1 and 2. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread, and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the richest affair. So a couple of things to notice about this invitation. Firstly, what is it that God is offering us? Well, it's so interesting to see in these verses that in terms of drink, there are three things that are mentioned. There is water, which is our most basic drink, isn't it? Uh, if you're thirsty, you don't want a cup of tea or coffee or even a can of Coke, uh, despite what the advert says. When you're really thirsty, you want a drink of water. We need water for life. And that's what God offers us this morning. On the most basic level, God offers us life. But then we read about milk, which suggests the idea of ongoing nourishment. Uh, when someone is dying of thirst in the desert, you give them water. But when you want a little baby to grow, you give her milk again and again. I think the image here is that God isn't simply there for emergencies. He's not just there when we're desperate. He's there to give us ongoing food and nourishment over the long haul. He invites us not only to come alive with water, but to grow and get strong with milk. And then there's wine. You don't give a dying man wine. You don't give a baby wine. Wine is something that you enjoy at the end of a beautiful meal as you're sat in the cool of the evening watching the sun go down. Or it's what you enjoy sitting in Kirsten Bosch Gardens listening to a symphony concert. It suggests luxury and enjoyment, even exhilaration. In other words, God doesn't simply offer us life. But in the words of Jesus in the New Testament, God offers us life, life in all its fullness. God offers us everything that is needful today for a full and meaningful and rich life. But there's something else about what God offers us in this passage. There's more than meets the eye. If you look carefully in verse 1, God says, Come to the waters. But in verse 3, God says, give ear and come to me. In other words, in offering us a feast, God offers us himself. When Jesus was on earth, he said the same thing. In fact, it's quite significant that when Jesus pointed people to God, he pointed them to himself. He didn't point beyond himself and said, God is over there. Uh, to a five-time divorcee whom he'd met at a well outside the town of Sychar, Jesus said, 
Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give will become a spring of water within that person, welling up to eternal life. After feeding 5,000 men plus women and children, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and the one who believes in me will never be thirsty. God invites us to himself through Jesus in order for us to have life, life in all its fullness. I said a moment ago that our thirst, our desires are infinite. And the reason for that is because you and I were made by God and for God. Our infinite desire can only be met by someone who is infinite and eternal and able to meet all our needs. And the problem is that we have this infinite desire and we try to fill that desire with things that are not infinite, things that fail to satisfy, things indeed that in time lead to our destruction. We see that in verse 2 where God says, Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? In other words, it's possible to spend your whole life sacrificing your time, sacrificing your family, sacrificing your soul to get to the top of the ladder, only to find you've been leaning the ladder against the wrong wall. C.S. Lewis, the Cambridge professor and former atheist, once wrote this. He said, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desire not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Our infinite thirst can be satisfied only by an infinite God, and God offers us himself today. I notice then, too, the most important element of this invitation, and that is that the invitation is free. All that God offers us today is free. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Do you notice the paradox in that verse? We're told that the food and drink are free, but twice we're told that the meal needs to be bought. How is it possible to buy without money and without cost? Well, as you probably know by now, there's no such thing as a free meal. If I take you out for coffee and you don't pay, it means that I've had to pay, or as delightfully happened to me a week ago, somebody at another table paid for both of us. But there's always a cost, and somebody always has to pay. There's definitely a purchase here, and there's a cost, but the cost is not ours. Someone else has paid the price for us. And that's why Isaiah chapter 55 comes after Isaiah 53. It can only come after chapter 53 because there we read exactly how much it cost for us to enjoy the free meal of fellowship with God. 
There we read that surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, each has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We've seen in this passage that God offers us himself, but there's a problem. We read later in the book of Isaiah, your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sin has hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. The Israelites have rejected God. They've disobeyed him. They now sat in exile in Babylon. And we too are those who disobey God. And all too often we reject him and try and find satisfaction elsewhere. And the good news of the gospel word gospel simply means good news, is that Jesus paid the cost for you and for me. He lived the life I should have lived, and he died the death I deserved to die in order to bring me back to God. Some of you may you may have read the book Captain Corelli's Mandolin, or seen the movie starring Nicolas Cage as an Italian. Uh, Captain Corelli is head of a division of Italian soldiers occupying the Greek island of Cephalonia. And at this point, the Italians are on the side of the Germans who also have divisions on the island. And when the Italians in Europe surrender to the Allies, the lives of these Italian soldiers are in danger because they're now the enemies of the Germans. And indeed, a small division of soldiers is captured by the Germans, led to a quarry outside the town, and shot. One of Captain Corelli's men is a huge Italian soldier named Carlo, who is a fierce friend of his captain. And Louis de Bernier, the author of the book, describes the execution scene like this. After the shooting began, the prisoners wheeling and dancing in the horizontal rain of bullets were crying out. They fell to their knees, their hands flailing, their nostrils haunted by the stench of cordite, searing cloth and oil, their mouths filling with the dry and dusty tang of blood. What no one had seen was that at the order to fire, Carlo had stepped smartly sideways like a soldier forming ranks. Antonio Corelli, in a haze of nostalgia and forgetfulness, had found in front of him the titanic bulk of Carlo Guerrero, had found his wrists gripped painfully in those mighty fists, had found himself unable to move. Carlo stood unbroken as one bullet after another burrowed like white-hot parasitic knives into the muscles of his chest. With a great last effort, Carlo flung himself over backwards, and Corelli lay beneath him, paralyzed by his weight, drenched utterly in his blood, stupefied by an act of love so incomprehensible and ineffable, so filled with divine madness. Take Carlos's sacrificial love for his friend and multiply that by eternity and you will get Jesus' love, not for a friend, While we were still sinners, while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. 
We've been speaking this morning about the fact that God is the only one who can satisfy our thirst. As a teenager, I never understood that. It seems so boring and irrelevant to our modern 21st century lives. How can a relationship with God be satisfying? But it's only when we truly understand the cost that has been paid for us that a relationship with God seems attractive. We've looked at our thirst, we've looked at God's invitation. Thirdly, how do we respond to this invitation? We're definitely invited to respond because there are several imperatives in these verses. Some repeated several times. Listen, come, buy, eat, enjoy. And I guess that fundamentally there are two responses. Either we can accept this invitation or we can reject it. But perhaps there's someone here this morning who would like to accept the offer that God makes to us in these verses. How would we go about accepting his offer? Verses 6 and 7 tell us, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God, for he will freely pardon. The first step is simply to seek, just to find out more just to open up your Bible and read, just to come along to the Alpha Course. And if we are believers this morning, to seek after God simply means to make space for him, to acknowledge him through the hours of the day, to read his word, to practice his presence, to spend some time with him. Secondly, we're called on simply to call, <laughs> call on him while he's near. That's such a wonderful word, call. You know, the religious word for calling on God is prayer. But many people have a problem with prayer. I can't pray. I don't know how to pray. I'm not good enough to pray. And so it's so delightful in this passage. The Bible doesn't say pray. Isaiah simply says call. All of us know how to call. You call out for help. You call a friend on the telephone. You call for an ambulance. You don't need a university degree in theology to call. A child can call. And that's what God invites us to do, even this morning. We can simply call on God. Maybe we pray, oh God, help me. That's a sincere call. Or God, if you really exist, show me, show me yourself. That's a call. Or God, God, I need you to come and save me and forgive me and make me new. That's a call. And then a third step, too. If you look at the second part of verse 7, let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. We're to forsake. Now at first glance, that looks as if God is saying, sort your stuff out, get rid of your wickedness and unrighteous thoughts, and then I will accept you. In fact, I think I've preached in this, on this passage in that way before. But I don't believe that's the message of this verse. Notice that the repeated invitation, come, come to me, and the invitation called to me comes before the step of forsaking. And what I think this means then is that when we call to God and we come to God and we see a love that is so incomprehensible and ineffable, so filled with divine madness, then quite naturally we forsake our other loves and by comparison, or that by comparison, turn out to be so much sludge and we turn to God. Something of that takes place at a wedding ceremony, doesn't it? 
when a bridegroom effectively says to his new bride, out of all the women on earth, I choose you. Your beauty and your person have so captured my heart. And then he says in the vows that forsaking all others, I keep only unto you until death us do part. What are the results of accepting this offer? Well, there are many, but just two to focus on. Firstly, there's pardon, verse 7. Let them turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on them, and to our God, for he will freely pardon. It's not like we have to wrench forgiveness out of the hands of an unwilling God. We go freely into the weak, knowing that we are forgiven, that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that there is nothing that I can do that would make God love me less, nothing that I could do that would make God love me any more. There's a sense of pardon and forgiveness. And secondly, there's joy. Verses 12 and 13, you will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. We go into the week confidently and calmly and even with joy. It doesn't matter what others may think of me or say about me. The God of the universe loves me and has given himself for me. We've looked at our thirst and at God's invitation and our response. Just one final element of this text as we close, but it's very important. If you look at verse 6, the writer says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. In other words, there's a time limit on this invitation. God's invitation will not be there forever, and we don't know when the invitation will expire. And so it's important for all of us to act now. In the book of Psalms we read, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Later in the New Testament, Paul says, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. There's an open window of opportunity for us right now, and we don't know when it will shut. And so if you're feeling a tug on your heart this morning, if you've never come to the Lord Jesus and met him as a living person, or perhaps you've been a believer for years and you've thought, God is calling me to something new. We need to come right now.